Well, church, let me encourage you now to grab your Bible or grab a Bible that is in the back of the seats in front of you so that you can join me in 1 Peter chapter 3. That's, that's where we're going to be spending some time here this morning. And if you're new to Shades this morning, we are so grateful that you are here. It, it's a privilege to, to us that you would join us. If you're joining us online, we're grateful that you're, you're joining in as well. And we want you to know we're walking through a, a series right now in the book of 1 Peter. We're going line by line, verse by verse, looking at this great letter written from the Apostle Peter to the early church that also speaks to us here today as a church through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we're in 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to begin in verse 18. We're actually going to make it to the end of chapter 3 here this morning. And and the reason I'm really encouraging you, we, we try to do this every week, look with your own eyes at the Word of God. Pick up a Bible, even if you, you didn't bring one, so that you can see for yourself. We're going to look at some challenging verses today. And these verses, they, they can, can, can create some confusion if we're not careful. We want to honor the text well and, and speak to what the Word of God is laying before us. And so I want you to see for yourself. Don't just take my word for it. Please read for yourself what the Word of God says as we turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. And we're going to do that right now. It, it's it's kind of normal around here that at the beginning of a sermon, we stand back up for the reading of God's Word. So I know you just received it, but I want to invite you all around the room. Would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word from 1 Peter chapter 3? And if you are new to Shades, we, we try to say this often. The reason we stand at the beginning of a message is we need to be reminded what the foundation of the church is. What does the church stand upon? The church stands on the solid rock foundation of the inerrant, unfallible, unchangeable, uh, infallible Word of God. That's where we stand. We stand on what God says. And in the Word of God, God shows us what He says is right and good and true. So we stand to be reminded that this is, this is the authority given to the church, the foundation given to the church, the very living, active Word of God that we consider in the Holy Scripture. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. The Word of God says this, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Now, what in the world is this all about? We're gonna talk about it. But this is a mysterious passage in many ways. There, there, there's a lot that can be said about these verses, but we're gonna, we're gonna press in here. But then we come to what the scripture says about baptism, what we just witnessed through the testimony of, of Stephen here today. The word of God says this, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Really, what's that all about? We're gonna talk about it. And then Peter says, it's not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. There's a lot here, a lot that we need to see, a lot that we need to consider. 
So as, as we do each week, we want to pray together before we're seated that God would, would take this, what, what we've just read, what's, what's living and active in this passage of Scripture and, and bring it to life in us. That he would do a work in us through his words. So let me ask you, would you join me in a word of prayer and then we'll be seated. Heavenly Father, as we consider your word and turn our attention now to the Holy Scripture, it is my prayer that you would illuminate for us what you desire to see. You know what we're walking through. You know what we are carrying into this room that, that feels weighty and, and, and feels significant and, and maybe feels overwhelming. And so, Lord, I pray that you would meet us in the midst of all of that. That you, that you would open our eyes to see and open our hearts to be receptive and that you would use this time for your glory as your spirit works among your people, that is the church, to show us more of who you are. Lord, do work in us through your word. Have your way among us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you so much for standing with me. We have talked about this throughout our study of 1 Peter. We need to be reminded of this again, or we need to hear this for the first time if you're new to this study. This is a letter that had a very specific purpose as Peter was pinning this letter 2,000 years ago to the early church. He's writing the church to encourage the church to live a certain way in light of what they have received. This is a letter to a, a church that is familiar with struggle, a church that is familiar with suffering, a, a church that even is familiar with persecution. And Peter is saying, you are called, church, to live a certain way in light of what you've received, in light of what has been given to you in the good news of the gospel. This should shape the way you think. It should shape the way you speak. It, it should shape the way you interact with the world around you. In light of what you have received, you, you are to stand out, we've talked about. The church is to look different from the rest of the world, not just blend in. To be strangers in a foreign land, the term Peter uses at the beginning of the letter is elect exiles, chosen by God for such a time as this to live in such a way that it stands out as different from the world around us. And last week we talked about this through God's word specifically as it relates to, to suffering and struggle and hardship. And here we continue to build on that theme in these verses. Peter is, he's offering us encouragement here in verses 18 through 22. He's, he's still talking about the reality of suffering, but he, he, he's, he's calling the church to encouragement in the midst of suffering. And he says something very poignant right at the beginning of verse 18. It's something that speaks to a challenge we all face when we struggle. A challenge that we all face when, when we do endure hardship or walk through suffering. And that's the, the challenge that we can easily begin to think that we're all alone in this. And nobody knows really 
what we're walking through. Nobody knows the weight of what we're feeling or, or carrying and, and nobody can understand. And it's easy to feel like in the midst of a struggle that we are all alone. I mean, after all, we know everybody's got their things. Everybody's got stuff that's not easy. Everybody's got stuff that they're trying to navigate. We don't wanna burden everyone with all that we're walking through. And even if we do tell them what we're walking through, they, they sometimes don't know what to say or what to do. And it can just feel so alone when we struggle and suffer. Peter makes this statement, beginning in verse 18. It's a statement that really reorients everything about the perspective of one who is a follower of Christ in the midst of suffering. And this is where we begin to see Peter taking us to this place of encouragement. He, he says to, to those of you who suffer, he says, for Christ also suffered. For Christ also suffered. Through, through this one simple statement, Peter is, is inviting us to reorient our entire perspective in the midst of suffering and look to the one who truly and completely understands suffering because he also suffered. He's not a, a, a lofty, aloof God that's, that's just out there in the clouds somewhere that, that has no idea what we're walking through. No, he stepped into, willingly, intentionally stepped into suffering and suffered far greater than we can comprehend. On the cross, not only is, is Jesus dealing with this horrific physical suffering, but, but he also has walked through relational suffering. His, his best friend, Peter, who wrote this letter, betrays him. Uh, another one of his friends who walked with him for three years, Judas, sold him out. And now, in the midst of relational pain, physical pain that's beyond what we can imagine, there's a spiritual pain. One of the things that Jesus says on the cross that's just, it's so amazing to consider is he cries out in anguish and says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the most lonely cry that could be cried. For in that moment, Jesus is feeling spiritual suffering in such a way that, 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 that we can't even comprehend. The Father and the Son are one. We, we serve one God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He is the, the triune God. It, it, it blows our mind when we start to think about the Trinity. But in this moment at the cross, the Son says to the Father, for the first and only time, I feel separated from you. I feel like you've forsaken me. And the weight of that, some would even say the weight of that is what killed Jesus. This spiritual suffering. Christ, why do I say this? Christ also suffered. You think you're alone right now? You think you're alone? Peter says, no, Christ 
also suffered. He, he knows every detail of what you're walking through. He understands the pain of, of relational suffering, emotional suffering, spiritual suffering, physical suffering. He understands all of it. He willingly stepped into suffering. Why? To bring us to God. The righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. That's, that's verse 18. Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, be, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. This is what theologians often call the substitutionary atonement. The substitutionary term. If you're taking notes, write that down. This is a significant term in Christian theology. It's a significant term in Christian doctrine. It's, it's one of the things that separates the, the, the Christian faith from all other world religions. What is it? It's that someone has stepped in on our behalf as a substitute. Someone has stepped in on our behalf to do what we cannot do for ourselves and not only was a substitute for us, not only did Jesus die in our place, but he offered the, the only worthy sacrifice in our place that could pay a debt that we owe, can make atonement. He is the substitutionary Atonement. He is the one who died in our place to pay a price that is far greater than we even often can consider. He gave his life at the cross, the righteous for the unrighteous. This is so good, so significant to bring us to God. Why? Because we can't get to God. Every other world religion will tell you, do all these things so that you can get to God. Live this way so that you can be right with God. Perform, 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 hopefully you'll make the cut. Perform, 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 hopefully God grades on the curve. And no, the gospel says, hold on, hold on. There's better news than, than all that other stuff that's being offered to you. There, there's, there's the ultimate good news that says a Savior has stepped into suffering as your substitute and has paid the price that you cannot pay so that you can be brought to God. Amen. This is the gospel. Yes, we can celebrate that. The good news. It's the good news of what Christ has done. So Peter says, look, if, if you're suffering, if you're struggling, you have a savior. He knows, he knows you're suffering. Christ also suffered and he suffered as the one who is perfectly righteous so that the unrighteous, you, me, and everyone else could be by faith brought to God. The substitutionary atonement. I love what Charles Spurgeon writes about this. I love a lot of what Spurgeon writes. He just was absolutely brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. The prince of preachers. And he said this, one thing I know, Christ thinks more of our sins than he does of our righteousness. For he gave himself for our sins. I never heard that he gave himself for our righteousness. We need to hear this. I never heard that he gave himself for our righteousness. And then Spurgeon said, I do think 
that this is the grandest truth in heaven and earth. Jesus Christ, the just one, died for the unjust that he might bring us to God. It is meat to my soul. I love that line. We had ribs this weekend. Oh, they were so good. And here Spurgeon's saying, hey, this is better than ribs. This is, this is the gospel meat for my soul. Fills you up, feeds you. An unbelievable feast. And Spurgeon said, it is, I can feed on it every day and all day. The grandest truth in heaven and earth is that the just one, the one who is righteous, gave his life for those who are unrighteous. Does that, does that feed your soul? A debt has been paid, an atonement has been made, a substitute has, has given himself for you, the, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that you might be brought to God. We just sang the song that said, my debt is paid. It's paid in full. What an amazing thing to consider. Have you ever had a, a, a moment in, in your life where, where, you, where you see a debt, like a, a real physical material debt that's paid on your behalf? It's, it's kind of a humbling moment. It's an it's a, it's amazing moment. Megan and I, and, and I have had a couple of moments like this, but one that was really, really significant when we were in seminary. Megan and I moved out to Texas to go to the Southwestern Seminary. And I'll tell you right up front, I know I mentioned Texas. This is about seminary. It's not about football. So we're talking about seminary. Went to Southwestern Seminary in Fort Worth. And, and you know, those who have been to seminary, especially if you were like young in the relationship or young in life, like when you go to seminary, you got nothing. We were so poor. We, we, we were just trying to make it to the end of the month every single month. That's actually how the, the first multiple years of ministry were for us, just trying to make it to the end of the month. But we had made a commitment when we got married, when we walked down the aisle. I'm so grateful for, for Megan in this regard. We made a commitment together that, that no matter what, no matter what came our way every single month, we were going to tithe at least 10% of our income back to the Lord, no matter what. Good months, bad months, good years, bad years, money, no money, it did not matter. We were gonna give at least 10%. I'm so thankful that, that she was excited about that because we had some lean, lean months and some lean, lean years. And yet we continued to, to try and be obedient and faithful to give and we continued to watch God do an unbelievable work. And one of the ways that happened is when we were in seminary in Texas, we actually purchased our first home. And, and I'll go ahead and tell you, we were part of the problem in the early 2000s, okay? You know, the housing market collapsed, right? Everybody's aware of that. But we were part of the problem on the front end of that because we got a loan for a house back in the days where they were just checking a pulse to see if you were alive and then they would give you a loan. We had no, we had no credit. We had no equity built up. We had no money. And, and we got this, this loan for this house and we were all fired up about our first house and so excited about it. We could make the monthly payments. That was great. But then God made it very clear that he was calling us to, to leave Texas and to move to Atlanta, Georgia. And I was going to continue in seminary, but I was going to go on staff at, at Johnson Ferry, uh, the church in Atlanta where my dad was the pastor. And I was excited about that. 
But obviously to move from Texas to Atlanta, you got to sell a house. And yet the Lord was calling and we had just found out that we were pregnant with our first child, McKenna. And so we were, we were ready to move and we felt like the time was right to move. And so we moved even though our house in Texas had not sold. So now we're living in an apartment in Atlanta paying for a mortgage in Texas, a house that we're not living in. I've got seminary expenses on top of that and our first child is on the way. We got nothing financially, nothing. It's tight. We continue to give, we continue to trust God. Month after month, miraculously, the Lord would provide. Just some crazy things would happen. We actually sold my car. We were driving one car for a couple of months and somebody was like, hey, I've got an old car. Why don't you just drive this one? I mean, like the Lord just continued to provide, continued to provide. And after about a year of that, where we were paying for an apartment, paying for a mortgage, new baby had just arrived. I mean, literally just trying to get to the end of the month with a dollar to our name. We had a gentleman in the church in Atlanta come to us and he kind of heard about the fact that our house hadn't sold. And he said, look, I, I just want to do whatever it takes to help you get out from from underneath this weight and this debt and this burden that you're carrying. And he said, so let's, let's, let's relist your house at a lower price. And, and we were like, oh, we, I don't know if we can do that because we're going to have to bring money to the table. We don't need equity. He said, no, no, you don't understand. We'll relist at a lower price and then whatever has to be brought to the table at closing, I'm just going to make up that difference. And it was so overwhelming because it was several thousand dollars, and for us at the time, that might as well have been several million dollars. We, we didn't have it. We could not do it. And he said, no, I, it's, it's my joy to be able to do this for you. And he paid a debt for us that we certainly didn't deserve to have paid, quite honestly. We, we, you could even argue we, we kind of made a foolish decision trying to get into that house to begin with. He's paid, he paid a debt for us that, that we certainly couldn't have worked any harder to pay. I mean, it was a debt that we could not pay. He paid it on our behalf. It's overwhelming, absolutely overwhelming. And that doesn't even scratch the surface of what the word of God is talking about here. The debt that has been paid for you, the debt that has been paid for me, it is so much greater then, then we can even truly understand what the, what the righteous one has done for the unrighteous. What the righteous one has done to, to bring us to God. He, he, has, he has paid a debt that is so much greater than, than we even know how to think about or, or even process. The Apostle Paul gives us some insight to, to this in Romans 3. I want to turn there real quickly and we'll go back to 1 Peter 3 in just a moment. But in Romans 3, we, we see this debt talked about. It says this in verse 20, a verse that is completely hopeless without the gospel. So a verse that is completely necessary to understand the gospel. Romans 3.20, here it is. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. What, what is this saying to us? This is saying, look, you, you may have made a lot of good decisions, 
Maybe you hear us, hear me talking about that, that house that we bought without any credit or, or any equity to our name. And you think, oh, I, I never would have done that. I make good decisions. We, we've always done the right thing. We're, we're moral. We're, we're well-behaved. We're, we're decent people. We're, we're living the right way. We're working hard. And the Bible says, look, there is no resume no resume of good works, no resume of religious behavior, no resume of, of proper morality, no resume uh, uh, of serving the community, no resume of, of any kind of works that could ever call you in the sight of God righteous. It can't happen. By the works of the law, no human that's all of us, will be justified in the sight of God because the law shows us you can't fulfill the law. It's too lofty. It's too beautiful. It's too pure. You can't fulfill the law. But then it says, beginning verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness. What is that? It's the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. The righteous for the unrighteous. Why does that matter? Verse 23, for there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. For by the works of the law, no human being can be justified in God's sight because we all have sinned. This, this is really tough to hear. Nobody wants to be called a sinner. Nobody wants to hear that they're not measuring up. Nobody wants to hear that they're not good enough. But here's the good news about hearing that according to the Bible. We're all in this together. Hey, welcome to the party. You haven't measured up. Me either. Welcome to the party. We, we, we all, we all have sin. Every single one of us. The gospel levels the playing field and the gospel says be because of our sin, because we are unrighteous, because no matter how hard we try, we can't fulfill the law on our own, we all fall short. But there is good news. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is received by faith. This is to show God's righteousness. Remember what we're talking about, the righteous for the unrighteous. This is to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness in the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The debt is paid. The debt is paid. The righteous for the unrighteous. The substitutionary atonement. He is just in that he requires sin to be paid for. We're all thankful for that, quite honestly. Unless it's just talking about us. But he requires that sin be paid for. At the same time, he steps in as the only worthy substitute and pays the price on our behalf. This is the gift of the gospel. Peter says, 
As you suffer, know that the Savior understands suffering. He suffered on your behalf and he suffered as the one who is righteous to bring you who are unrighteous to God. Now with that, we go back to 1 Peter 3, 19 and 20. And and these are some verses that are challenging. In fact, there's a lot of different opinions around what these verses mean. There's some mystery here around what this is talking about. Let's read these verses. Uh, But as we do, I want to just give you a quote from the great Protestant reformer Martin Luther as he talks about 1 Peter 3, 19 and 20. Listen to this. This this is what we're uh, stepping into right now. He says, a wonderful text is this, and a more obscure passage, perhaps than any other in the New Testament, so that I do not know for a certainty just what Peter means. I cannot understand it, and I cannot explain it, and there has been no one who has explained it. Thank you very much, Luther. But here's what we know. We're stepping into some verses that do have some debate. What do they mean? What is Peter talking about when he says Jesus proclaimed to the spirits in prison? What, what is Peter talking about when he brings up Noah and he, and he talks about those who formerly disobeyed? What is this all about? Well, look at these verses and then we'll try to unpack it the best we can in light of the mystery and in light of the fact that our God is so much greater than we can possibly comprehend. I enter into this with fear and trembling, but I also enter into this with great excitement. Because while it's hard to understand exactly all that these verses are talking about, there is a beautiful meaning here that needs to be pulled out of this text for the people of God. It says, In which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Now, again, what in the world is this all about? Peter is making it clear that, that Jesus preached to the spirits who are in prison. Who are the spirits who are in prison? We're not entirely sure. It could be fallen angels. It could be specifically those who were disobedient in the days of Noah, like what Peter talks about. It could, it could be what, what some people draw out of the Apostles' Creed when it says he descended into hell. It could, there's people that believe that Jesus preached in hell. We don't know what this is saying. If we have any theological or intellectual integrity whatsoever, there's lots of interpretation, lots of debate around this. Here's what we do know. That through the cross and the power of the resurrection, Jesus is making a proclamation. He is preaching a sermon. And he's preaching a sermon to the spirits who are in prison, whoever they may be. He's preaching a sermon that is a sermon of victory. He's preaching a sermon to the disobedient spirits in prison of their defeat. He's preaching a sermon that proclaims that through the cross and through the power of the resurrection, as the righteous has given his life for the unrighteous, there is victory. And this is such good news 
Because as we look at the world around us and see an evil world and see a sinful world and see a broken world, it's easy to get discouraged. It's easy to feel overwhelmed. It's easy for people to live in fear. We see what's happening in the world around us. Peter takes us back to a time when the world was so wicked and so evil and so dark and sinful that God looks down and he sees there's only eight individuals from the family of Noah who in God's economy and in God's sovereignty, only eight individuals, we don't understand all this, who, who, who were worthy of being spared. Not because of what they've done, but because of what God was going to do for them. And, and look, you can study Noah. Noah had a lot of flaws. He had a lot of problems. And Noah was the best of the best at this time when things were really, really bad. And so God floods the earth and he saves Noah and his family through the ark. And, and is that supposed to tell us that, that Noah is, is, is an incredible person and worthy of salvation? No, it's supposed to show us that God in his grace and in his mercy is willing to pull people out. The brokenness of evil and pain and sin and suffering. And he's pointing us to this beautiful declaration of victory when evil is punished. And more than that, when evil is no more. This is where it's going. That the cross and the resurrection declares to a world that is overrun by evil and sin, that the light shines brightly in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it and the darkness will not. Victory. Victory. The cross of Jesus Christ and the power of his resurrection signifies the end of the enemy of God that is rapidly approaching has put on notice the, the minions of the enemy of God that their time is short, that, 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 that the, the Savior is coming back on a white horse with a sword in his mouth and evil will be brought down once and for all. Victory is being preached by Jesus. This is the good news of victory proclaimed to the disobedient spirits in prison. Through the cross, the forces of evil and the demonic powers of this present darkness will be brought to their demise. Through the cross and the power of the resurrection, a day is coming when death and pain and suffering and all the agony of sin and evil in this world will be no more. This is the promise of victory for the people of God. Hey, let's go there. Hey, hey, let's get excited. Let's get excited. Come with me to Revelation 21. Come with me. I know some of you stayed up too late watching football last night. Let's get fired up right now. You were fired up yesterday. Get fired up about what matters today. Revelation 21, look at what the Word of God says at the end of the story. Just go to the very back of your Bible, Revelation 21, verses 4 through 6. Do you hear victory here? He will wipe every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Victory! 
Neither shall there be mourning, victory, or crying, victory, nor pain anymore, victory, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Victory. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water a life without payment. Victory. And this is the promise of God to the people of God through an empty grave. This is the promise of God to the people of God that the righteous has come for the unrighteous to bring us to God. This is the promise of victory. And this is the good news that the church of Jesus Christ is invited to build our lives upon. And please hear this, because we're, I'm, I'm, I'm no prophet, but I feel like I need to say this. We're going to be talking about this a lot next year. 2024, it's an election year. And people are going to go crazy. Good people are going to get really weird. People that say they love Jesus are going to act like they've never heard of Jesus. It's going to be weird. People are going to go nuts. It's going to happen. Just telling you. And the church of Jesus Christ has been called to stand upon the promised victory that we have been given by the empty grave. Church, do not lose sight of the victory that is ours when the righteous gave his life for the unrighteous like me so that we could be brought to God. Let that be the focus of your eyes. Because if it is not in an evil world that is overrun by sin, you will lose hope. Don't lose hope. The victory has been given through the empty grave. And we close with this, 1 Peter 3, verse 21 and 22, as Peter uses this example of Jesus preaching to the spirits in prison and the rescue of Noah and his family through the ark. And he begins to talk about baptism. This is where we land today. He says, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. What does that mean? Not as a Removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to him. Now, now what does this say? Baptism now saves you. Please, Please hear this for just a second. This is one of those texts that many people throughout church history have been guilty of what is called proof texting. Okay, what what is that all about? What is proof texting? Well, proof texting is when you take one little line or one little word out of the scripture and you build a whole belief system on it. And you say, see, there's a verse, there's a verse that says this, but you don't look at the scripture in light of the whole scripture. And so you've actually walked away from the scripture. You've used the scripture to get you away from scripture. That's proof texting. 
And there are people who will say, okay, look at 1 Peter 3, 21 and 22. The only way to be saved is through baptism. And then they'll go on and they'll say, the only way to be saved is through baptism at this church. Or the only way to be saved is through baptism in our denomination. And that's nowhere in the Bible. That's actually hijacking what the word of God is saying about baptism to try and build something that gives people power. That's not what the word of God says here. Is baptism essential to salvation? Seems like Peter's saying that, but look at the scripture. What's the scripture say? He says, wait, this is not about removal of dirt from the body. It's not like the baptismal waters literally give you a bath and wash you clean. No, it's not that baptism saves you. He goes straight to the resurrection and he talks about the, the, the one who is seated at the right hand of the Father. That's where salvation comes from. So why does he make a big deal about baptism? Well, baptism is evidence. It is evidence of a life surrendered to Jesus. This is why we want to be really cautious about young children being baptized. This is why we don't sprinkle or baptize infants here as a church. It wasn't their decision. And we believe, according to the scripture, that baptism is always a decision of faith. It's a step of surrender. It says, I'm following Jesus. That's, that's why when we baptize someone, we ask them to, to say, who are you following? I'm following Jesus. It's a public declaration that, that says, I'm with Jesus. And it's powerful. And the word of God calls the people of God to be baptized as followers of Jesus. The word of God doesn't say it's optional if you get around to it or if you go through a membership class or, or if you might have time for it someday. No, it says if you're a follower of Jesus, associate with Jesus and show people that you're following Jesus. Provide an example of surrender and stepping out on faith to be baptized, to say, I'm with Jesus. It's not about the water, it's about the decision of faith that leads someone into the water. I love what theologian R.C. Sproul once wrote about baptism. He said, if I thought for one second that baptism put people into a state of justification, I would stand on a corner with a fire hose and baptize as many people as I could. I get that. As a pastor, I get that. If I thought water being dumped on someone, covering their head would save them, I would walk around with a water balloon in each hand and super soakers strapped to my back every day. And if you came within a few feet of me, you would be soaked in water. I would love to do that. But the water is not what saves you. It's the surrender to the one who is righteous, who died for the unrighteous, that saves you. And baptism shows I have received that gift. I want to be associated with the righteous one. I want people to know I follow Jesus. The one who has authority over all things. The one who is seated at the right hand of the Father. He is my Savior. He is my Lord. I'll just go ahead and say this bluntly. Some of you have made some really ridiculous excuses for why you haven't been baptized. But the Bible is saying, if you're following Jesus, stand up and be associated with Jesus. 
Have faith and say, I'm surrendered and I'm following Jesus. Why would we not want to be associated with Jesus if, if we believe that the righteous one suffered and died for the unrighteous so that we might be brought to God? So some of you have some things to wrestle with today. I have some things to wrestle with today. Let's pray together and let's ask God to use his word to reveal in us what we need to see and then to move us by his spirit to action, to step out on faith in light of what God has said and God has done for us through Christ, the righteous for the unrighteous. Let me pray for us as we close. Father, we thank you for this time in your word. I, I thank you for the freedom to get fired up in preaching and, and, and the freedom to, to look at your scripture and, and to, 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 to call people to a step of faith. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to be challenged by your word. I thank you for the opportunity to be inspired by your word. In all these things, we, we know that your spirit is moving among us to show us what we need to see and then to, to, to propel us forward in, in action, in faith. So Lord, I pray that we would not be the same as a result of what you say. I, I pray that, that we would live in light of what we have received, Lord. And that even today, if we need to step out on faith and say, I'm ready to be baptized. If we need to step out on faith and say, I'm ready, I'm ready to, to live generously. I'm ready to give faithfully. If we need to step out on faith and say, I'm ready to serve. If we need to step out on faith and say, I feel called to ministry. If we need to step out on faith and say, I, I feel like it's time for me to stop playing games and to actually follow Jesus. Lord, show us what that step of faith is. Give us the faith to put into action what you have laid before us and, and, and what we would say, many of us, that we believe. Lord, let these not just be empty words on a page. Let these be words that spring forth into our life and change us and move us. Oh, we thank you for the good news of the gospel. We thank you for the finished work of the cross and the, the empty grave that literally changes everything for those who believe. Lord, we thank you for the righteous one who died for an unrighteous one like me. We praise you for the gift of salvation. For those who have never received that gift, we pray that today would be the day that they would say, Jesus, I am ready to trust you. I'm ready to follow you in faith. I know I need you. Jesus, save me. There is power in that prayer when it is real and authentic. I pray, Lord God, for those who are wrestling with whether or not to trust you, that you would give them the faith to see what you have done for them. Give them eyes to see the grace that is being extended to them and the forgiveness that is offered for their sin. And we pray, Lord God, in all these things that you would use us for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.